Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast, brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, located right here in downtown Pahuska, Oklahoma. Hey, it's old Cody right here, and as always, I have my co-host with me, Mr. Rodeo Historian himself, Mr. Historian Everything himself, Jimbo Snively. Hey, Jimbo, it's good to see you this morning. And who, who do we have today? Hey, Cody boy, good to see you, and it's another great day in Osage. Cody, we got uh, the best-selling author, Mr. Dale Lewis, with us today. Uh, you know, over 50 years ago, E.C. Muldor, a prominent Osage County rancher, was murdered, and, and it took the whole country, you know, uh, shocked everybody around here for sure. And... Uh, he uh it never was solved officially and uh his bodyguard chubb anderson who's with him the night he was killed uh later on they never could charge him and and about uh 20 years later he he got arrested for a, a unrelated charge and he jumped bond and was in hiding for i don't know 15 16 years up in montana and uh they brought him back they finally caught him brought him back and dale when he came back dale developed a relationship with him and uh visited with him on a regular basis and uh after chubb died uh of course chubb related a lot of the facts of the murder case to him and after chubb died why dale uh, wrote a book called footprints in the dew which you can get here at the museum great book i read it and couldn't put it down and uh possibly solve the murder in the book so we'll just have to read the book to find out but anyway we're going to get into all that and uh, Dale, welcome to Cowboys of the Osage podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. I actually think he goes by Buffalo Dale. Yeah. Jimbo. How'd you come up with that? Well, I'd been writing a weekly column uh, for a chain of papers out of New York. And I was uh, came up with that name uh, actually watching a uh, John Wayne movie where it was the... Uh, uh, and it, it just kind of come out of the blue, I guess. And then the original part was from a, uh, I think that was True Grit when they, when it was um, one of the outlaws was the original Bob or something like that. And I like that original Bob. He got killed by John Wayne, I think, here at, down when John Wayne said, "Get put the guns in your hands, you so and Yeah, right, so, right. But anyways, that's where that came from. And my column had been running for a long time when I, yeah. when I Chubb got a hold of me. Yeah. Are you still doing the column? I resigned my column about a month ago. I remember reading it a lot in the Marsville paper. I, uh, How many papers was it in? Six or seven, uh, always in the Bartlesville paper, and it always been in the Pahuska paper. But it yep. was in some other small papers, and once in a while, someone nationally would pick up, pick it up. How do you get picked up to be a columnist? Picked up by several different, I guess, syndicated columnists. Uh, How's that all start for you? Well, I just send my column in, and they send me a small check every month. And once I send it in, they send it out to their other newspapers around the country. And if uh, one of the editors wants to pick it up, they they paid for it, so uh, they can uh, pick it up and run with it. I don't keep track of where it goes. I know it's been in the Examiner and over here in Pahuska for 20 years. Yep. This book you wrote, it's primarily about the Oklahoma outlaw, Chubb Anderson. What what was Chubb's past like? What was his past? Yeah, like? what made Chubb Chubb? Well, Chubb had a charisma to him, I felt, that uh, really drew people probably uh, more outlaws and regular folks to him but uh, I found that it was about 50-50 uh, there are a lot of nice folks that thought Chubb was a pretty nice fella and of course there are a lot of outlaws that he hung around with uh, he's got quite a criminal record uh, if uh, that's all listed in the book but uh, he had a charisma to him for sure and, and uh, especially for women lots of women lots of women what's some of the crimes he did in his early days well, his record starts out in 1960 with forgery and grand theft auto in Amarillo, Texas. In 65, uh, he got busted for cattle wrestling right here in Osage County and uh, did seven years down at McAllister for that one. 
69, he got busted for speeding and unpaid traffic tickets and driving without a license. Uh, 1970, when the murder happened, he actually got busted for parole violations and, uh, um, and a uh, gun control uh, felony. Uh, he was carrying a gun around and he wasn't supposed to, of course. And then he's got another string of them. Do you want me to go on? It goes for a little while. <laughs> so he has a rap sheet that's this thick. <laughs> he did. One of those <laughs> typical deals. He, he just seemed like, and like uh, Dale said, he was a likable guy. You know, I, I was around him a little bit, worked on, with him on one job, and he was just a likable kind of a guy. But he, obviously, he just couldn't hardly stay out of trouble, you know. Even, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but even when he was in Montana, he, on the run, trying to keep a low profile, he, he had a brush or two with the law. Oh, know, yeah. Which, he, uh, which is just bog, you know, that, blows my mind. You that, know. Yeah, that's pretty wild to think about that. Yeah. There's a uh, fellow still messing up in Montana that uh, they think that Chubb took yeah. care of him. It was Chubb's second girlfriend up there, and they were up in a bar, uh, Chicks, it's in the book, they were up in a bar called Chicks and uh, the guy was uh, kind of uh, working Chubb a little bit and, and not calling him a sissy, but it might as well, and Chubb just laughed it off. They never saw him again yeah. after that night. He could fight, he wasn't a big guy, but he was built pretty good and he could really fight. Uh, he said that he had to whip two or three of them in McAllister before they left him alone, you know, <laughs> when he was in prison down there. Well, even in Lansing, uh, when they brought him back from Montana, he was pretty sick. Uh, he sat down at the wrong table at the dining room there, mm -hmm. and uh, some uh, Spanish guys were getting in his face, and Chubb got right back in their face, and he was a uh, pretty, pretty sick fellow yep. then, but he wasn't taking nothing from nobody, even, right, even in those right. days. So, What made you get interested in, in this case? To begin with? Well, I'd always heard of the Mullendore murder, uh, but when they captured him, he started writing me from Lansing, and uh, I'd never met the fellow before, and the uh, cops uh, wanted me to uh, go up and talk to him because he would not talk to them, wouldn't talk to George Wyman. Uh, Bart Perrier was the cold case investigator at the time, and they tried to go up there and talk to Chubb. Uh, that's in the book also. Uh, I don't want to keep talking about the book, Cody. You won't be you you won't be selling them if I tell the oh, whole yeah. story. Oh yeah, so, everyone's going to be interested in this story. But uh, uh, he got a hold of me, and and um, the cops wanted me to go up and and visit with him. He wouldn't even talk to his family. I was the only one he wound up talking to. And uh, he started writing me letters from the prison, and I would see him every week uh, on Saturdays, and that's how we got started. Right, right. Every week? Every week. Over how long a period before he died? He was locked up at Lansing for about six months before they turned him loose, mostly because of his bad health. He, mm -hmm. he had several things wrong with him. Uh, and then when they uh, released him, he uh, uh, continued to call me, and it was a, uh, I never pressed him on the Mullendore thing. That was kind of my thought. Everyone for years had been asking him about the Mullendore thing. So I just wanted to ask him about his family life and this and that, and he wanted his life story told. But uh, he, um, I remember one time uh, we met up in Nitez when he got out of prison. He could only go to Oklahoma because the DA in uh, Washington County, Rick Esser, uh, put out an arrest warrant for him, so he stayed up in Nitez. But I remember going up to see him one day to interview him, and he said, no, don't come up. Said, said uh, Lonnie Brown's coming up today. He said, you gotta stay away from Lonnie Brown. And I didn't have a clue at the time what he was talking about, but I did know who Lonnie Brown was, a nice fella. And, uh, and I knew Lonnie Brown was in the hay hauling business back in the day on the Mullendore Ranch. And I uh, learned soon that uh, Lonnie Brown played a little bigger role than just hauling hay. You know, I, I read the first book and uh, back whenever it came out. And uh, 
they just mentioned Lonnie Brown one time in that book, and it was about his hay hauling. You know, he just called him a hay hauler, and he was driving too fast or something. You know, that was the only mention of him in that book. That was the day of the murder, and he would not be interviewed by uh, Jonathan Twitney, who was the author mm-hmm. of the Mullendore murder case. And actually, Jonathan Twitney didn't hardly interview anyone yeah. involved in it. He did interview George, and that's in the book too. I talked to George about it uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Yeah. The odd thing about Lon- or about Chubb in Montana that surprised me was he 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 allowed himself to be photographed, you know, and he he contacted people back here. Were they looking for him that back hard? Who was actually looking for him? The, the bail bond, the company here in Oklahoma. Yeah, he jumped bail. Yeah, but I mean they couldn't look for all over the world for ten thousand dollars or something, could they? I mean. Uh, was anybody really after looking for him that bad? Yeah, there were three bales bondsmen pretty hot on his trail, but uh, a couple of people knew where he was, but they were pretty close and tight lipped. Sure. But sure. they were looking for him, and and that bail bond wasn't as much. You know, over the years, it had grown to be millions of dollars, and it wasn't very right. much money. Right. That's what I mean. I knew but they, they were looking for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, but it just seemed like he wasn't keeping as low a profile as, as I would have thought. A guy would, you know. Well, it was kind of crazy. You know, he had a bank account up there. We have a check right here in the museum from Jack Everett and also a business card. He can weld anything but a broken heart is what it says. And, uh, you know, I've heard that, you know, he was up there. He'd go to parties at Ted Turner's place and, you know, take a picture with Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, the the Mm -hmm. leader of Russia at the time. So... It's just, it's just pretty wild. He wasn't keeping that low of a profile. It didn't mm-hmm. seem like, you know, in hindsight, looking back at what was going on up there. Did you ever know why he went to Montana to begin with? Yeah, he had been up there hunting a few years earlier uh, with a couple of these friends that knew where he was. Mm-hmm. And pretty remote place up there. And, and, uh, um, and he had went to Mexico first, but he couldn't speak Spanish. And he told me it was just hard to get around and do anything. And and he decided to uh, take his horse and head up to Montana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why he went there. He'd been there before. Yeah, they were. He was really into hunting and outdoors. You know, I know that. And Lonnie the same way. Yeah, he had quite a reputation for hunting up mm-hmm. there in uh, Montana. Uh, Lonnie Brown actually shipped him a dog so he could train it yeah. uh, to hunt mountain lions, yeah. and he took the sheriff on a mountain lion hunt yeah. uh, one time. So When I worked with Lonnie, he always carried a twenty-two, two fifty in his gun rack and had one of those big varmint barrels on it, and we'd just be going down the road, and one of us seen a coyote, and he pulled off the road, and he could hit that sucker, you know, <laughs> no matter how far off it was. If you could see him, he could hit it. So they were big into guns. Yeah, Chubb had always been in the guns. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a whole lot of them up there in Montana. As he started getting sick he uh, with this kidney disease that um, he had claimed he had been welding these buffalo pens for Ted Turner for a couple of years. And he had ordered some pipe, and Lonnie had actually set that deal up down here in Oklahoma. And them boys made a little bit of money off of it, but the pipe he sent off had a Teflon coating in it. And Chubb should have known better, uh, but he kept on welding that pipe up for these buffalo pens, and he was making dang good money. And uh, that's what started all this uh, cancer that he got. Yeah. Huh. Well, uh, when uh, he was up there, he had several friends, several girlfriends and, and everything, didn't he? And, and, uh, and still got in trouble with the law. Yeah, this uh, he had a couple. Of, I've interviewed him for the book. A couple of very nice ladies, and uh, the second one, uh, Chubb wound up growing. She had a little ranch up there, and Chubb wound up growing a little pot on the back of it. And she found it and got upset and kind of was booting him, trying to boot him out. And uh, she got her another boyfriend, and and this boyfriend kind of. Uh, got in Chubb's face at Chick's Bar, the only bar in, I don't know, miles and miles. And uh, Chubb just sat there and took it. And uh, I think that's the way a real bad guy is. Chubb just uh, took there and took it all night, and this guy was grabbing this woman and dancing with her. And, and uh, But they never saw him again after that night. And most of the locals up there think that Chubb did this fella in that evening. Yeah. So. That's just another one of those stories, kind of like the uh, 
the bond money, how much right, had grown right, up. So right, uh, right. who knows? He had a passion for marijuana. I don't know if he liked to smoke it, but he sure liked to grow it, didn't he? Yeah, he uh, pretty good uh, green thumb, and he did like to smoke pot. He uh, smoked pot on a, on occasion up whenever I was interviewing him. Yeah, and uh, up in Kansas, that was at Keith Atkins. Uh, uh, oil field. He, Keith had a metal building there and let mm-hmm. Chubb move into it. Yeah. Kind of felt for him a little bit. Uh, Keith has made it very plain, though, in public that he did not like Chubb Anderson. He loved the Anderson family, mm-hmm. but he thought he didn't think much of Chubb. So he took Chubb in because he liked the family. Yeah. Huh. What do the people up there in Montana think of it after they this all came out and the wash that he really wasn't Jack Everett? He was Chubb Anderson. Uh, most, on the run from the law. Most of them knew that he probably was not who he said he was. Really? And most of them up there knew that he was kind of a dangerous fellow probably and didn't really go too far with him. But they liked him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a great, his personality just kind of, and, uh, but if you crossed him, he still liked you, but you might mm-hmm. pay later. Like, right. uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. But, um. I've never met anyone that, uh, Saw him get whipped. Yeah. Now, he did like to land that first blow, and I've heard many people say that. So. Yeah, yeah. It surprised me, too. You know, he was a convicted felon from that uh, cattle rustling deal. and uh, But every time he'd get caught, that marijuana, he'd always have a truckload of guns, you yeah. know, have them stolen, you know. And he, he just, I don't and know. all loaded. Yeah, yeah. He just couldn't stay out of trouble, you know. When he got busted for the big pot uh, patch up at Pat Scudder's ranch, uh, they found 62 guns, most of them stolen, hidden all over the place mm-hmm. up there, and, and most of them were loaded. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and a lot of other stolen stuff. You know, a lot of the intrigue to that murder case was that the ranch was in trouble and they'd taken out this big uh, life insurance policy on EC. I guess the largest one in in uh, U.S. history at that time, and uh, and the mafia, you know, the ranch was in trouble, and there was reports of the mafia up there, and he was trying to get money from them, and there were just a lot of uh, side stories to the whole thing, you know, and it just tweaked everybody's interest in the story because there was so many things going on. Was there anything to the mafia deal, or do you know? Yeah, Chubb and I talked about that quite a bit. Uh, You know, on the murder itself, I don't know if you fellas know this, uh, I've been subpoenaed uh, by the Attorney General to a multi-county grand jury investigation and put under a gag order concerning the murder. And I'm I'm kind of... Still under that? Well, I'm not under it any longer, but the... uh, They've asked me not to say a few things about the murder because even though Chubb's been dead since 2010 and now Lonnie Brown is also dead, who Chubb implicated in the murder, uh, the people that I work with uh, uh, that are helping me, I've, I have two lawyers and we're trying to push this to a real movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Who could invent a story like this? 400,000 acre rancher, family owned the New Orleans Saints football team, shot between the eyes in the middle of the night, right up, right outside of Pawhuska here, about, about 10 miles. Mm-hmm. And he held the largest life insurance policy ever written in, on anyone in the country. You couldn't make this story up. And right. this is a true thing. Right, right. So, throw the mafia in there too, you know. You, you got the mafia. Chubb said, and, the FBI and everybody was at the ranch the next morning. Mm-hmm. Chubb told them that the people that killed E.C. Mullendore and shot him were the same people that killed President Kennedy, yeah. who had just been killed a few years earlier. So, And that's in the book, too. Yeah. You know, one thing, I, I got acquainted with Dale Court. Oh, probably eight or nine years after the murder, he was living up in Thayer, Kansas, and we built a, built a barn for him. And uh, one day he come out and said... Uh, uh, Wayman's come to see me uh, over the weekend, and he said he still thinks Chubb did it. So Dale didn't think Chubb did it at that time. Now, he may have changed his mind. Did he ever you, – you interviewed him. Did he ever – Yeah, I interviewed Dale a lot. Mm-hmm. He had moved over to Arkansas to uh, 
uh, Grand Prairie, I think, said mm-hmm. down. He passed away about four years ago. No, he did not think that uh, Chubb would have done that. You're I correct know. on that. I know. And I showed him the tape uh, that, uh, well, I'm going to get into something that I shouldn't be talking about. Uh, Chubb, I taped Chubb, yeah. what he was talking about, the murder. But he kind of changed his mind. Paul Kelly uh, was also there on the ranch. Uh, he wasn't the first one on the scene, but he did travel with EC and, and Chubb. And Paul Kelly just didn't think that Chubb would have done it either. Uh, Chubb was quite a fella. Well, yeah. He was quite a fella. Yeah. And, uh, but here Dale was the clo- was really close. He was the first guy Chubb talked to after the murder. Correct. And, I, and you know, he, he was really close to the situation, and still he didn't think Chubb did it. That always made me kind of wonder, you know. Yeah, Chubb ran over to Dale's house about a block away and told him to get a gun, and he was crying, and, and a Chubb I'm talking about yeah, was crying, sure. and and saying, get a gun and come quick, EC's been shot. And, and uh, so that's what Dale did. Dale jumped in, grabbed a twenty two and jumped in his truck and jumped the fence and drove right over there with his lights shining mm-hmm. right into the house. Yeah. I wonder how Chubb got sucked in so tight with EC. You know, he just, he's ex-con. He shows up as a, as a welder. You know, yeah, and he's a cattle thief going to work on yeah. one of the biggest ranches yeah. in Oklahoma. Yeah, how many served seven you, years down in McAllister? For do you it? hire on your ranch? You know, and then before you know it, he he's he's his right hand man. Mm-hmm. How'd that all come about? Did Chubb ever talk about that? Well, he started out building fences out there after he got out of McAllister, if I remember right, and then he was such a good welder and they welding fences and. And then he kind of backed up EC, and, and you'd have to get into EC's personal, uh, uh, into his life to see why he would uh, uh, put a man like Chubb to work. Mm-hmm. And I've told Catsy, EC's sister, that I would not get into EC's life. Mm-hmm. I may later, uh, but right now I'm, I'm going to let uh, EC's, because... I wasn't out there, so I don't right. know for sure why EC would put him mm-hmm. on there. But, yeah. you know, EC's character was a di- we're all different. Sure. And EC was different, too. And and you hear the stories that uh, Chubb saved EC from all kinds of beatings and stuff, and I think that's been exaggerated a lot, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, why EC hired him, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. You, Cody, uh, if you go leave town going uh, up to buffalo ranch and you go up past williams park you know all that and you get out and open past all the houses notice that fence on the left that used to be mondor country i think it's mormon now but just look at that fence chubb built 1968 or 69 probably use seven inch corner posts the posts were on 10 inch 10 foot centers with a stay in between them and the fence is still good it's 55 years old but anyway my point is that uh, ec had fence like that built all over the ranch and, and it cost so much money it got the ranch in one of the things that helped get the ranch in financial trouble doing all the, that fencing it was really expensive and all the locals talked about that fence what a heck of a fan. It was overbuilt, what I'm trying to say, you know, with the stay, 10-foot center plus a fence stay in between them. You know, it just it was kind of overbuilt. But it's still up there, and it's still a good fence. Those you those. pay attention to it sometime you go up there. Chubb, yeah. Chubb built Someone that. really does need to write a story uh, just on the, the Mullendores themselves, I think, because yeah. it's such an interesting story. You know, we there's so, uh, you know, socialites of the area, for sure, of Oklahoma, they would have these extravagant parties, you know, and they'd print their own money, Mullendore money, and give it to them in a Mullendore ranch wallet, you know, so they could gamble and, uh, and buy booze and stuff. We got some on display in here. It's just uh, such an interesting story about some of those guys, you know, yeah. and what. And E.C. Mullendore seemed like a real character himself, mm-hmm. you know. And the old man, he was another story all exactly. to himself, you know. From what I, My Uncle Joe was working up there when E.C. was killed. And I remember, still remember, like yesterday when we got the call that Sunday morning, I think it was, that EC had been killed. It was sure a shock to everybody. What did your Uncle Joe think? Oh, uh, he he didn't sure. He he thought Chubb was was definitely capable of beating EC to death. I remember him saying that way on back there. But 
Well, EC's wife had left just a few days mm-hmm. earlier with his kids. And if that had happened to you, I'm sure you'd be going kind of wild. Mm-hmm. And uh, EC uh, found out that Chubb had Linda's phone number and had been telling Linda what he was up to and where he was going and even telling Linda that Chubb was coming to Tulsa to look at a couple of places. Mm-hmm. And uh, EC found that out. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, Chubb's not... You can push him, but yeah, I AC kind of went a little bit too far. I, but uh, then again, I'm I'm gonna kind of keep yeah. that under my hat. EC was a, was a tough little. I mean, you know, he, he wasn't a fighter, but he he would sure fight. I guess you know from what I, I understand, you know, and and uh, he wasn't just uh, gonna lay down. And if he got mad at Chubb I, and drunk drunk too, you know, I guess he were. He would could have jumped on Chubb and started this whole deal, but who knows? Such a wild story, you know. Even all, all the way down to the swimming pool they have in their right. backyard, that's in the shape of their their brand. So I mean, it's just a it's right. just a it's it's just a story for the ages. The whole thing, every little twist and turn about it. Now, have they made a bed and breakfast, or going to make something up there out of that? Yeah, I think it just sold. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, it sold uh, three or four months ago, and they are offering, you can actually rent it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they offered elder care to have their Good, Bad, and the Barbecue uh, fundraiser out there this year, but elder care already had it set up for the Hughes Ranch, which is a famous ranch also over in mm-hmm, the Osages sure. here, and that's going to be Mother's Day weekend. Uh, I've been helping them a little bit with that. What uh, is that Good, Bad, and Barbecue? I've been hearing all about it for years and years and years. I've never been, but uh, this is the 25th year, and it's uh, just a fundraiser for Elder Care, which is an organization that that helps seniors stay home as long as they in their own homes as long as they can, and they send people to clean up your house if you're a senior, and and even to do a little cooking for you. It's a great organization for for seniors in Bartlesville, but they do service people here in Pahuska too, Elder Care does. Mm-hmm. But uh, the ranch was on the block, and I heard that it was for sale, and Elder Care uh, asked Robert Hughes if they, if Robert would let him have it over there on his ranch, and Robert agreed. And so uh, Mother's Day weekend, that's really gonna be a big thing. I looked at the their schedule uh, just a couple of days ago, they've got like 30 sponsor tables already. And uh, actually, Cody here's uh, donated some stuff from the museum for the silent auction. So, oh, yeah. But, wow. Uh, Everybody get over there. Some big time stuff we donated. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I never did understand in the book the old gal that married Chubb there toward the end. What what was her angle? Did you ever figure that out? Well, I think it was we. I got along good with her for a while. She she wound up turning on Keith Atkins, who was Chubb's power of attorney, appointed by a judge, and then Margaret Bird was his uh, in home nurse. And this woman turned on Margaret. These things are mentioned in the yeah. book. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, she turned on Margaret, and then. Uh, I uh, she knew that I was writing Chubb's life story. I was mm-hmm. over there. She'd drop in, and I would be taking notes, and Chubb would be talking to me. But I told her uh, that I was going to put her in the book, and she got all upset, and then she turned on me. And uh, Chubb would call me and say she's not going to be here today, or she's not going to be here this afternoon. And that's when I would go mm-hmm. up and see him uh, up to about a week before he died. I just never could figure out what her end game was. Yeah, it's such a crazy thing. The way Buffalo Dale wrote it, she was a younger girl, mm-hmm. very, very good-looking. Chubb, he's sick with yeah. all this stuff. He's even wearing adult diapers in there. And, and you know, it's it just, uh, it, it is crazy it, it what her end game was. It just was. didn't add up. School uh, teacher mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Independence. And uh, actually, that's Coffeyville, I believe. I'm sorry. Uh, good-looking girl. Had, had her own house. She'd... Uh, from her grandfather, and uh, Chubb went over there and stayed a few times, but the woman had 
like eight or nine cats and always let them in the house. That'd be a deal breaker for and me, right? Chubb never liked that. He said the only thing cats were for was for shooting. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, everybody has to read that book just because, you know, there's so many twists and turns. Even in his later life, it's crazy. Um, he... he, he he moves in. This young girl moves in with him, marries him, you know, and know. changing his adult diapers. I mean, I just don't understand it whatsoever. But it's a uh, it sure made for another great chapter in that book. Holy moly! And Margaret Bird, you know, uh, I got acquainted with her years and years ago, um, and I didn't know that she was in the book until me and my wife we read the book and. Uh, Lauren said, what if this that same Margaret Bird you do business with all the time? And I said, I wonder if that's the same Margaret Bird I do business. She's from up there in Kansas. So long story short, she comes in to buy some Pendleton blankets from me when uh, I had that store. And I asked her, and she said, yeah. So uh, she filled me in quite a bit on uh, on Chubb's life and stuff when she, she knew him. You know, she grew up with mm-hmm. him, and uh, they were classmates in school. And uh, they brought, she brought quite a few of his things. Oh, she's the one that brought the check from Chubb and the the business card from Chubb. And we even got Chubb's coat from when he was on the run and has his gray hair uh, shed off in it still and pictures of him wearing it. So uh, it, it's just a small world out there, really sure. small world. I couldn't believe it was the Margaret Bird coming in uh, to do business with me that, from the book. So she saved Chubb. She was absolutely gold for Chubb. Uh, she, and he treated her like really bad you'll find that out in the book he does treat her horrible yeah and that's kind of turned keith even more against chubb because this margaret bird would come over there and bring him breakfast and and uh he would wind up having troubles with his diapers and the floor would be messed and she'd get down on her hands and knees and clean it up and as soon as she'd leave he'd go to bad mouthing her and and keith just couldn't hardly take that and he got in chubb's face about it once and uh, about being nice to Margaret, but uh, she kept on, kept on going, even up to, till the very end when they put him in a nursing home there for a few months. Well, uh, she, uh, I think it was a relief to myself and Keith because it was driving her kind of nutty too. So. That was kind of a wild deal when he got in the nurse home. There, there was another party that was trying to get, for whatever reason, information out of Chubb and stuff. What, what was that all about? Or can you talk about it? Yeah, I could probably mention that a little bit. Gary Glance is one of the top investigators, really, in the country. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's wrote stories about him. He's top of the line out of Tulsa. He had been hired by EC's widow. He was there the day after the, the murder, the next day with the widow and John Arrington, who, as you may know, wound up marrying EC's uh, widow. But he always wanted to talk to Chubb and trying to find out where he was. Even he couldn't find out where Chubb was up in Montana. And then whenever Chubb started writing me, he found out that I was interviewing Chubb and he contacted me and he wanted to talk to Chubb and Chubb would not talk to him at all. And uh, Chubb thought that he was tied up with Bill Curtis from A&E Television. And Bill Curtis had talked to Chubb briefly and uh, told Chubb that uh, Gary Glance thinks you killed E.C. Mullendore, and Chubb had a fit up at the courthouse and said, well, why don't you just go talk to Gary Glance? What are you messing with me for? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but uh, Gary always wanted to go up there and talk to him, and just out of the blue one day, Chubb said, well, just bring him up here, and I did, and we met uh, Chubb at uh, the restaurant there in uh, Caney, and I tape recorded that, secretly tape recorded that uh, interview. And I'll be dang when we le- we all left. I wasn't out of that cafe 10 minutes. Gary called me and he'd left Chubb too. Chubb had went back. And he said, I got a strange feeling you were tape recording me. And I said, you got that right. And he blew a fuse on that because he said some personal things, trying to get things out of Chubb. And me sitting in the back seat, I saw what he was doing. And I had that tape recorder strapped on my leg. And he was so intense with Chubb, he didn't see that I'd put my leg up on the seat even to get a where I could 
hear that thing a little bit better, but he was saying all kinds of things, trying to trip Chubb up, and and as a third party in the back, it was pretty obvious, but uh, Chubb saw it too. Chubb, mm-hmm. Chubb didn't give in too much. Uh, he did tell Gary that he had figured it out from day one, and that was about as far as he went with Gary. And Gary came back up there as Chubb got sicker and sicker. And uh, back to your story about the nursing home, he brought uh, Clark Brewster, pretty famous attorney, uh, snuck, him and uh, Clark snuck in up there when all the staff uh, late in the evening were gone and were trying to interview Chubb. And uh, uh, this is in the book. You'll, well, what you, were they wanting though? I mean, what was their end game? They wanted to, Chubb to tell them that he'd killed EC. And then so they could solve the case, I mean, yeah. basically, or write a book? Or... Well, yeah, it's a pretty famous thing. Yeah, he and, was. Uh, yeah, just to... Although Clark Brewster's been involved with some big cases. Oh, yeah. He, sure, uh, know him. he drove know him. Uh, all the way up to Coffeville from Tulsa, mm-hmm. and Gary thought that they had it all wrapped up, and, and uh, uh, Chubb didn't give him nothing. But uh, it was quite a story. It's just another chapter yeah. uh, for the movie, really. So, uh, And I've seen Clark here i don't know if he really knows who i am but i've seen him in some other cases that i've covered for the paper and he's been cordial to mm-hmm. me so uh but gary gary does i like gary glance if you mm-hmm. ever needed mm-hmm. somebody that's gary glance's mm-hmm. work he's the one you'd want to hire now is he harvey glance's brother uh yes gary, yeah. the sheriff the sheriff yeah. cousin Okay, cousin. Okay. And there's a group of them. They're all buddies, Clark okay. and Gary and, and uh, so. Yep. Chubb, oh. he became kind of a celebrity after all this, didn't he? Oh, yeah, I'd say so. I wonder, I've heard tell, but I don't know for sure. I'm going to ask you. They have a, uh, a big thing over there, Phillips, uh, Woolarock, once a year that Frank Phillips started a long time ago called the what, Outlaw and... Lawman reunion. Cow thieves and outlaws. Cow reunion. thieves and outlaws reunion. Did Chubb ever come back to that when he was on the run? No, but when they captured him, uh, there was rumor that he was going to show up there and he would have a twenty-four-hour window when the DA wouldn't uh, arrest him. And that was all a made-up story just to sell some tickets to the event. <laughs> but the DA thought that it was a real story, and he called Keith Atkins up in Caney and said, if Chubb comes to Oklahoma, I'm going to arrest him. And uh, so... <laughs> so he didn't come to the... No, he never went up there. The Cal Thieves reunion. I always heard that he did, and he had 24 hours lead time or whatever no, it was. He, that didn't ever happen, but the DA thought that he was going to go. That is a true story. And... and uh, I think Bart and I kind of, Bart Perrier was my main contact with the uh, sheriff's office. When uh, Chubb started talking and sending me the letters, uh, I had a a private investigator, armed guard license myself. I had been doing some security work for Vince Gill and some other high-end entertainers uh, around the country. And uh, I thought that I might be getting into something that would... uh, that the law enforcement should know about. And uh, I went up and Bart took me into his office and and I uh, told him what was going on and he immediately got hot after it. And uh, I, uh, I always kept Bart involved, and I, but I never crossed Chubb. And I told Bart from the start that I wasn't gonna be a, a pawn for the sheriff's office, but I would keep him informed and they knew that I was tape recording Chubb mm-hmm. and then uh, they asked me to listen to those they asked to listen to those tapes and Gettner Drummond was representing me a little bit and and uh, he didn't think that was a good idea and they subpoenaed me to get those tapes but my relationship with the sheriff's office had always been good so mm-hmm. I was I was fine with letting them listen to the tapes mm-hmm. and then they went after Chubb after they heard those tapes up in Kansas did Chubb know you were going to write a book? Yeah, he wanted me to write okay, a book. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, he uh, contacted me with the with the letters and the phone calls. Okay, that was the whole idea of him yeah. contacting you. Just, yeah. Okay. And uh, I don't know if he meant to tell me what happened. Yeah. But with me not asking him like everybody else was, you know, what happened, 
Mm-hmm. I just let him bring it to me, and, and it was almost natural. He just kept on talking because I never said, well, did you kill him or what happened? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he just brought it out to me. Mm-hmm. So, Wow. There's also videotapes that you taped, in there? Videotapes that we put into a documentary film with Chubb talking about what happened. And we showed it here in Pahuska, and we're going to show it again. We may show it over here at the theater maybe this summer. And uh, Chubb tells you what happened in the videotapes. Really? So. Hmm. Yeah, we had Bart on our podcast here just a while back, and he gave us his take and his thoughts on Chubb and the case. Did, did Chubb implicate Lonnie on, on the tapes? He did. Yeah. Now, you're worming us out of me. You two guys quit that. I'm not supposed to well, be talking about We've been about doing this. these podcasts for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Jimbo's one of the best. I don't want to really talk about the murder just a whole lot. Right. But, uh, yeah, you're going to find out what happened. And, and if you don't believe the book when you see the movie, uh, I think you'll, most of yeah. the people that have seen the documentary, that they had any doubt at all what happened that night on who killed EC, they don't mm-hmm. after they see what Chubb says. So. Yeah. I don't want to get in Lonnie Brown much myself. I like to say I worked with him for two years and really considered him a friend. You know, and he I like he, Lonnie Brown. He was good to me. Oh yes, uh, Lonnie Brown was. You know, you you probably know this. Uh, he was kind of tied up with Chubb in a lot of Chubb's activities. Uh, Lonnie had got busted for stealing pigs also. Uh, when they were all, there was a bunch of guys stealing mm-hmm. back yeah. in those days. And I'm going to say that's back in the early 60s. He had just been a kid then. He was a yeah, kid. for sure. But he he worshipped Chubb Anderson. I know he did. I know he did. And uh, uh, Chubb had married Lonnie's sister. And uh, Lonnie kind of grew up out there around old, old Chubb. And he kind of liked the way Chubb handled himself. And uh, mm-hmm. From what Chubb told me, them two cleaned up a couple of beer joints uh, before. Yeah. And I don't mean with a mop, I mean with their fists. Right, so. right, right. Here recently, you've kind of got a, you told me, I don't know if you can talk about it or not, that uh, you've been going down to McAllister. Somehow, they've wrapped you up in going and witness, witnessing executions. My uh, weekly column has got me, they pulled me up. These state executions have been on hold for about 10 years. And because my column runs in a lot of other towns, the first execution was John Grant. And he had killed a prison guard, a woman. Uh, She was supervising the uh, cooks who were inmates. And one of the inmates uh, pulled out a uh, shiv put his hand around her mouth and stabbed her 18 times in the chest. And he'd been on death row for 26 years. But the reason that they pulled me cause, is because my weekly column runs over there in Hominy. So uh, they like to have a reporter from the local town, if possible, uh, witness the execution. So they had me and the Associated Press guy and a news anchor from Channel 2 and two other reporters out of 40. Uh, they gave us seats and they pulled them out of a hat for the other three to witness this execution. And uh, it was about uh, five, John Grant was strapped down about five foot in front of me. And uh, it went kind of like what you may have read. The state has said that it went smoothly. Uh, there's a trial going on now down at the federal courthouse that I thought they wrapped up last week on the next execution that's supposed to be going on. These guys are filing cases saying that it's uh, inhumane. So they pulled me down there to testify last Monday and Tuesday on what I saw. And uh, <clears throat> the guy's a pretty rough fella, but I'd rather be shot than what he went through. Uh, but uh, most people say he deserved it. So. Well, he ended up dead. Yeah, he's dead. It took him about 42 minutes. Holy moly, but here a while back, Jimbo, I'm going totally off subject here. I'm sorry, Buffalo Dale. A guy lived through the lethal injection. Totally lived through it right here in Oklahoma. How does that happen? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was several years ago, wasn't it? I mean, well, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. That's when they quit doing it, though, isn't it? For a while, they were going to reevaluate the 
the dosage and all that. Yeah, I think so. They had stopped them for about 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I remember the case you're talking about. Maybe one of the first ones <clears throat> back. I'm not sure. They've had a lot of trouble with that here lately. Yeah. So. You know, I don't know what was wrong with the electric chair or the gas chamber. You know, and I mean, seriously, you know, it worked for years and... And uh, I guess they were hanging in, seems pretty well fail proof. Yeah, firing squad, any of that. That girl he stabbed, she didn't die smoothly either. No, we got off on something weird there. Well, the last guy was about three weeks ago, and he had killed four people, mm. and he had been on death row for eighteen years. Mm. So, and I might be off on those years. He'd been, he'd been on death row for a long time. Yeah, were you down there for that one? Uh, I went down. They did not pull me up to go behind the walls. They took me back behind the barbed wire and uh, pulled the names out, but I was not pulled to go back. The only one I've actually been behind the walls and witnessed was the first one, John Grant. And then the second one was the uh, fellow that had all the support uh, from the celebrities and movie stars and stuff uh, that... uh, the governor granted him a life and that was in the first of december and i thought the story would be outside uh, where all the protesters were so i didn't go behind the walls on the second one and uh, it was pretty interesting but but governor stitt granted him the stay or the life about an hour before he was set to be strapped down so when chubb was in prison down in McAllister, did he ever compete in the prison rodeo I should ask him that. I'm real interested about that. No, I didn't ever ask him that. I wish I had a Cody. Uh, what we talked about when he was in McAllister was the murder of the Cletler family uh, because when they captured Chubb working for Ted Turner, they sentenced him to Lansing, and that's where Hickok and Smith from the Cletler family murders that made the movie In Cold Blood uh, that's where they were held, and that's where they were hung at, and they actually kept Chubb in one of those cells that Hickok was in, and that's what we talked about a little bit, and uh, he was locked up in McAllister when those murders happened, and they kind of made news uh, around the McAllister prison because they hung him, mm-hmm. and Chubb remembered that, and he remembered in Cold Blood, the movie, he was a real fan mm-hmm. of... Uh, the movie star that Robert uh, Blake, Robert Blake's. Yep. And so we talked about that, but I wish I had to ask him about the prison rodeo. I, he had to be involved in the prison you rodeo. I think he would have been. He'd have been a star <laughs> recruit for the prison rodeo. I'd have to say. Uh, he's the only man that I could find that had scored a perfect score in bull riding. And, uh, uh, and he won a bunch of saddles and buckles, but he usually gave them all, all away. He didn't have really anything. And, the ones he had up in Montana were auctioned off to pay for his dialysis treatment that he was receiving. So uh, when they brought him back, uh, he didn't have anything. And when I went up to get his stuff, uh, he, he had hit it out and he t- drew a little map where it was and he didn't have nothing, a few clothes and some letters and, and uh, some audio tapes. And he had taped himself up there hunting. And uh, those movies are in the film that I put together to the documentary. So. And one uh, one of his friends up there came down here to see him, didn't he? He, he and his wife. Yeah, um, I'm. Uh, Can't think of his name, but. and I am forgetting his name right now too. His son was in the Air Force, and he came down to see his son at uh, I believe it was a Tinker, mm-hmm. and he'd called me and he wanted to go by and see Chubb. So and Chubb wanted to see him, and I'll think of his name in a second. I uh, took him up there and left him. I stayed there for about 30 minutes, and this would happen a lot with me and Chubb. Uh, if he had a friend that came in there, I felt like it was their re- their time, mm-hmm. and I didn't stay in the room, right. and I did the same thing with this fella. Uh, I walked out and just went, I drove around Caney for about an hour or mm-hmm. so and let Chubb and this guy have their own mm-hmm. time. Right. But this fella had told me that Chubb hadn't told him uh, anything about the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, he did know about this other fellow that disappeared up there mm-hmm. a little bit. But that stuff's in the book, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to sell a book or two here today. Well, I hope so. Yeah, the book's available right here at the museum. Yeah. 
online. Ben Johnson Museum. Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum.com. And, and I'm going to autograph right them all of them before I leave here today. You've got a new book too, don't you? Before the do? I do have a new book, but we pull that off of the shelves. Uh, we're not, you can get them online on my website, originalbuffalodale.com. But I have pulled those uh, books off the shelves. Uh, I don't feel like that I did it justice. And also, um, one of the Mullendore family. It's got a little bit more personal stuff on the Mullendore family. And I understand one of the Mullendore family's not overly thrilled uh, with it. And I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm gonna reword it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So if you've got one, you better hold on yeah, to it because they're not gonna be, I'm thinking about burning the rest of them. We're sold out of them. Yeah. We're sold out. Oh, of you them. had them for a while. We we carried them. Why didn't you give me one? Well, if I'd have known they were they were going to be such a rare book, Jimbo, I'd right. have got a whole bunch of them. Actually, right. yeah, they're all out everywhere. Uh, the ones that still had them, I I bought them back. Yeah. So, hmm. what I, else you doing now, Buffalo Dale? You you working on another book? I'm kind of working on cleaning that one up. Uh, I've been contacted for a film on this. Uh, a couple of different people during the filming of. Killers of the Flower Moon here. Uh, Gettner Drummond represents me and a fellow named Bob Funk in Oklahoma City owns Express Ranches, Express Employment. His personal lawyer uh, represent me. And when someone comes up and asks me about film rights or something, I just refer them to Gettner. And I figure if they're for real, Gettner will call me one of these days and have me come sign something. But uh, I think... Uh, Gettner's a pretty pretty good fella. Uh, when I uh, got subpoenaed and I was having a lot of trouble, I'd never met Gettner, but I was friends of Reed Drummond's uh, brother, Michael Drummond, who died recently, or Michael Smith, who died recently. And uh, I thought I'd get a hold of Gettner and see if he could help me, although I'd never met him. And he uh, accepted me into his office, gave me some good advice on this subpoena, uh, had Lori Fulbright from Tulsa come to his office and interview me, and he stood back there to make sure I didn't say something I wasn't uh, supposed to. So I think pretty highly of Gettner. I hope he's our next attorney general. That's what I was going to say. Who are you going to represent you when he becomes attorney general? Well, Bob Funk's attorney, uh, pretty busy. Bob's got several personal attorneys that just work for Bob. But, uh, but uh, I just get advice from those guys, and... And Cody. Yeah. Well, I've thought for years. That <laughs> I'll it, give you some advice. <laughs> I've thought for years that it should be a movie. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. got enough twists and turns, and it, to me, it'd be a great movie. You couldn't make this stuff up. No. I mean, no. if I was making up a book, I couldn't make all this stuff right, up. Right. And uh, I think it would be great again for Pahuska and Bartlesville and the surrounding communities uh, if they made another big, a real Western. You know, they don't make real Westerns. Uh, I've talked to several people at the Cal- board members. I've got three board members at Cowboy Hall of Fame that are giving me advice that are tied up to this. Ernest Borgnine wanted to play E.C. Mullendorf's dad, Gene, and I'd talked to him quite a bit about it, and he was all on board. And about two weeks after the last time I talked to him, he died. Yeah. Uh, but I've talked to uh, many of the guys. So uh, Joel McRae's grandson, Wyatt, is tied up with me in this uh, there's a guy from Disney that's tied up with me on, on the film, but it's hard to put a, it ain't easy putting a movie together, a big time movie, you know, so. Uh, hey, all you movie people out there, <laughs> get a hold of Bu- Buffalo Dale or one of his attorneys and uh, let's get this deal made. Let's thought, do it. I thought you and Marty were pretty tight. Well, I, I, I yelled at him from across the street and he, he waved at me yeah. real big. Just had one finger up there, though. Yeah, I, I said, Marty, Marty, and he went. And he was turning like that, and you know how uh, a camper trailer that goes in the back of a pickup is pretty low. Mm, right. He was turning like that, waving at me, and he almost hit his head on the on the on the nose of the right. camper trailer. Right. So I about took out Marty just by yelling at him. Yeah. So. Well, you know, you don't know who these people are behind the movie scenes. You've got Robert De Niro, who bought a book, by the way. 
and Martin Corsese and the other fellow, the big name from Titanic. Mm-hmm. But it's those people that are walking the streets, the money people that you don't know are the ones behind this movie. And that's the ones I was hoping on selling a book to. Those folks that you may not... De Niro, you know, he came up and I was out on the street autographing books and I uh, said, well, what's your name, brother? And he said, just put... And I didn't know who it was. I had my head down. And he said, just write your name in there. And I looked up at him and I started to write my name in there and I said... Boy, you look a lot like that Robert De Niro fella. And he smiled at me and he said, everybody says that. And as soon as he said that, people gathered around him. He took my book and ran off. But it's the people you don't know that I was trying to get this book out to. Those are the ones that will take it to a movie. It's not the De Niro's or, I mean, if he got bit by it, it'd help, of course. Or or the uh, Corsese's, it's those money people. And we sold almost 5,000 books just this summer through the Ben Johnson Museum and the and the Buck and Flamingo and Laurie Cranch and some of those books went to those movie people. So, you know, maybe we'll get a call one of these days and we'll do another cast with uh, uh, with Robert De Niro or somebody. Well, yeah. Well, the Killers of the Flower Moon book, uh, actually, Martin Scorsese and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, they bought the rights to that book for a movie before they ever published it. They knew how big, great that book was going to yep. be. So if one of those guys got your book in their hands, you never know. Yep, you, you just never don't. know. And that's who we were shooting for is somebody that you don't know, you know, that might pick up the book, take it back to... Uh, well, they were all here. Yeah. And um, uh, the uh, fellow that was here every morning with the long hair married to... Uh, Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek. I said hi to that guy every single day, and he never waved at me. He never done anything because he parked right across the street from the museum. I would say, "Hello, Mister Fisk," and he, he would just look at me like I was a crazy guy. And I approached him the same way I did Chubb. I did the same thing when I said I sat in a director's chair. He didn't say nothing back to me. So from then on, I never acknowledged him. He started coming around and talking to me. That was the approach I went to Chubb. And this guy started talking to me. And the last day I was in town before I went to Santa Fe on a book signing swing, uh, he came by and I said, I'm not going to see you again. And we shook hands and said, I'm reading that book. And so, you know, it's people like that that might pass it to someone they know. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, it helps if you get a a De Niro, you know, that's really interested. But he's not the one behind the, he's not the money behind it. He's just the name. So Who who would play Chubb? Ooh. Who would you think played Chubb, Jimbo? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking. I don't know. I'll come up with somebody in a minute. Yeah, I think so. Um, Who do you got in mind to play Chubb? If you had to pick your perfect actor. The fellow from Tombstone uh, that shot Billy the Kid. Uh, what is that fellow's name? He played Doc Holliday. Oh, Val. Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. He's old, though, now. He's in rough shape. Well, my attorney... Of was old in a lot of this story. The attorney in Oklahoma City represents Val Kilmer, and supposedly Val Kilmer's not in best of health, mm-hmm. but he, he said that he did talk to Val out in Santa Fe and mentioned it, but I don't think Val Kilmer's in very good health or he something. He could play the sick chub. He could be the old chub. Yeah. But we got to have somebody that beating up those guys at McAllister Prison. The young chub. You haven't thought about this? No, not really. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> all right. Everyone put in the comments who you think should play chub and all, everybody. And uh, I'll pass it right along to Buffalo Dale for you all. And I'll pass it on to the lawyers. and Right. There you go. So on and so forth. We probably got him in all kinds of trouble with his lawyers today. Probably, Jimbo. Yeah, I probably got my phone's going to be ringing right now. <laughs> well, Jimbo, do you have anything else for old Buffalo Dale? Well, just thank him for coming in. And wow, what an interesting story and i just encourage everybody to come by the uh buck and flamingo or the ben johnson cowboy museum and buy a book it's a great book like i said i read it and couldn't hardly put it down i've never read a book that size that quick they sell that book everywhere probably even on the is it on amazon they're almost a hundred dollars on amazon we took it off amazon they wanted to raise their rate that Mm -hmm. my uh we agreed on and the woman that represents me said, we ought to take it off. And I said, just take it off. And as soon as we took Perfect. it off, people started reselling them. 
on Amazon. So uh, yeah, they're about a hundred bucks on Amazon, but on my website, Original Buffalo Dale, you can get them. Uh, they're cheaper if you come down here and buy them at the museum. And I uh, sure wish people would quit lending them out because people come by and tell me they've read the book Aunt, Aunt Betty lent it or Uncle Bob, and and I got it from his son who'd read it. It costs us money every time you lend them books out. Tell people to go buy their own. I'm going to loan mine to my wife. That's <laughs> Thank <only> you. One. <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah. The wives are okay. They're probably paid for it. Right. Well, Buffalo Dale, we appreciate you coming. And uh, thank you for telling us all those great stuff. What's the deal with the pants here? Well, I'm my weekly it. column for 20 years always ends with till next time I'll see you down the road. And I get asked about these pants quite a bit. And when you're on work release from the prison, you got to wear pants with a yellow stripe down the leg. Hmm. So that's what I tell people these yellow stripes about. I'm just on work release for a little bit. Well, everybody, until next week, this has been another great edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast. Hey, take us out with your famous line again one more time. Till next time, I'll see you down the road.